This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hey folks, this is Jamar Tisby with another episode of Pass the Mic, one of our few episodes where we do an interview. Y'all know it's usually just Tyler and I gabbing away, but we're so eager to welcome our guest, Dr. Keisha Blaine. Welcome to Pass the Mic. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I know you are basically the busiest uh, historian in the field right now. So I just want to say thank you for, for making time for us on your book tour about this phenomenal new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Now, the great part about this, Dr. Blaine, is that regular PTM listeners are no strangers to Fannie Lou Hamer because she's mm-hmm. one of my historical heroes. And we'll get into that in a moment. But but before you, we do, for folks who may not be familiar with you or your work, tell us about yourself. Yes. Well, there's so much to tell. Um, I'm currently <laughs> a professor of history uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. I also serve as the president of the African-American Intellectual History Society. Uh, and this is a, a scholarly group uh, which focuses on uh, research and, and the research and the writing uh, of Black intellectual history. We, we focus primarily um, on the African American experience, but we're also interested in, in global Black thought. I think um, those who are familiar with the organization will know us through our blog um, called Black Perspectives. Uh, I was the founding editor of the first. Um, a senior editor of the blog, Black Perspectives. Uh, and uh, it's really over the last couple of years, it has been a wonderful space for us to talk about uh, Black thought, um, Black history broadly. And um, in addition to that, I'm also a writer. I, I write um, for MSNBC. I, I focus primarily on on race, gender, and politics, uh, which of course are the the core themes of my other research and writing. Um, before this book, I've, I wrote several other books. Uh, the first solo authored book that I wrote uh, is entitled Set the World on Fire. Mm-hmm. And it looks at Black Thank Nationalist you. women's political activism. Thank you. Uh, in the 20th century, that came out in 2018. And I've done several collaborative projects. Uh, the most recent one uh, was with Ibram X. Kendi. And uh, we collaborated on 400 Souls, uh, which you contributed uh, to the volume. So thank you for that as well. And I'm just thrilled to be here to talk about my latest work, Until I'm Free, uh, which looks at the life and ideas of Fannie Lou Hamer. That's a wonderful synopsis. And I will say to our listeners and viewers, you're definitely going to want to follow Dr. Blaine's work. Uh, We have her uh, social media handle on here, but also grab her other books. 
um, really just uh, uh, an industry leading historian in so many ways. And we'll talk uh, specifically about your public engagement as we go forward. But I just want to say I'm such a fan of yours mm-hmm. and your work and also just the way you approach your work. So you. let's get into the book here. Um, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. So you're a historian. You counter all kinds of historical figures and actors. What was it about Hamer in particular that that drew you to her? Well, Hamer is someone who actually, um, I would argue, changed my life. And uh, Mm. I was a senior in college, uh, and I was taking a course on the civil rights movement. And it's in that course that I first learned about Fannie Lou Hamer, What's interesting is that I had already declared a major in history and Africana studies. So I was taking all these courses on the Black experience, and yet um, it it took me uh, quite a while uh, to finally get to Hamer. I was deeply moved by Hamer's story. I was deeply moved by Hamer's words. Uh, Hamer's testimony uh, at the Democratic National Convention in August 1964, which I think most people know, if they know anything about Hamer, they certainly heard That's right. that particular speech. Um, to this day, it remains, I think, one of the most important speeches uh, ever delivered uh, at the DNC. And in fact, uh, it was through Hamer's story that I came to find my own path. Mm. I was questioning myself um, as someone who, as a first-generation college student, as someone who um, you know, had a similar background, you know, working poor background, someone who really wandered, questioned what I could contribute to society yep. given the limitations um, of, um, you know, in terms of access, in terms of financial resources. These are the kinds of questions that I asked. And what Hamer taught me was that I was asking the wrong questions. Instead of asking mm. uh, about what I didn't have, I needed to be thinking through what I did, in fact, have to offer. Uh, and for me, the answer was uh, my writing and my research. I, I saw very clearly mm. that I could contribute something to the world, that I could one day write books and, and articles that would shed light uh, on the Black experience. And I would, in fact, center the voices of folks like Fannie Lou Hamer. So it's, uh, I think, uh, surreal, but really wonderful to be in this moment where I have this opportunity to tell her story. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about her over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. particularly because people have often asked me, how do you have hope? Uh, how do you, uh, where do you find inspiration? You know, how do you manage to keep going when everything looks so, so bleak? Uh, and I think about Hamer. I think about all that she went through, all that she endured, how she pushed through. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about today, uh, it, it is very much connected to her faith. Yeah. Um, and I think Hamer's story is one that every single person needs to hear. Uh, I think that uh, this is a, an urgent book. It's a timely book. It's one that helps us strategize in this particular moment as we're dealing with the same concerns that Hamer grappled with, including voter suppression, including state-sanctioned violence. Uh, so I'm I'm really honored that I have this opportunity to contribute in this way. I'm just so interested in 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 your backstory. Um, Where did you grow up? What part of the country, if you don't mind me Mm -hmm. asking? Well, I was born in the Caribbean, I think. um, But yes, I know, uh, which is fascinating uh, in and of itself, which is another story to tell. I will write a memoir. Um, But I I, I grew up mostly in Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, First, I was in Brownsville um, and then mostly in Crown Heights. 
Wow. And um, yeah, and and this is, I think, so important. Um, in fact, there's a lot I could say because I, I from a, I think from a very young age, um, certainly understood the importance of um, one might say thinking transnationally, and so I, mm-hmm. it's actually not coincidental that I've sort of gravitated to uh, writing about um, Black internationalism broadly. Uh, I was in a community of people from from all over the place, you know, so just on my block um, in Crown Heights, um, some of my neighbors uh, were, were, you know, Hasidic Jews, some of my neighbors uh, were from Trinidad, were from Grenada, were from Barbados, uh, from Jamaica. So it was this, you know, Afro-Caribbean community, uh, interracial community. Uh, And I think all of these experiences uh, really stayed with me. And when I went to um, Binghamton University, upstate New York, uh, similarly, I was surrounded by people, a lot of people from Brooklyn, in fact, uh, attended Binghamton. Um, okay. And um, and I think uh, one of the most inspirational, inspirational aspects of my story is that I never even imagined myself uh, as a historian, as an intellectual at all, um, until I had um, the opportunity to take a course with a professor, um, you know, by the name of Michael West, um, who was really the the first black professor um, mm-hmm. that I encountered. He had a PhD uh, from Harvard, and I remember marveling at that and thinking, "Wow, I had never encountered um, black people can do that." <laughs> <laughs> right, right, um, and that was so um, moving for me, but. It's powerful because I think just knowing that I started to dream about the possibilities and um, and what the future could hold. And and he um, was a mentor and still is a mentor. I have to mm. say to this very day, I still um, you know reach out to him and rely on him for all kinds of advice. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, but uh, in that moment, he saw my potential and he encouraged me and said to me, "You can get a PhD. Uh, you can get a PhD. You're a good writer. You're a good researcher." He challenged me. He encouraged me to take his graduate courses. I mean, just mm. really an amazing professor. Um, and so many others, too, um, similarly supported me at Binghamton uh, and nurtured me and made it, I think, just uh, laid everything out for me. And even just applying to colleges, I, you know, for graduate school, I was very nervous, um, did not know what to expect. Yeah. And, and they supported me. So I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely, uh, you know, without question, um, the embodiment, one might say, certainly the uh, the evidence of what's possible when you have um, educators who are supporting students, who are invested in the success of their students. I'm a testament to to that. So I um uh, never imagined initially that I would become a professor, but once I set out on the path to become a historian, I just kept pushing uh, all the way through, and I'm thrilled to be able to do this work. Yeah, uh, I'm so grateful um, that 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 you pursued that. Grateful to Dr. West for encouraging you, and I'm so glad that you let us in a little bit to your backstory because so much of the work that we do as historians is in some ways connected to our past and 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 our journey. Um, let's talk about the journey of writing this book. So one of the things as an author that I'm always interested in is the evolution of book titles. Because the, the the working title that you have and the title that you start with isn't necessarily always the one that you end up with. Uh, was there ever a different working title for this book? And how did you land on that final title, Until I Am Free? 
oh, this was the title I wanted from the very beginning. Oh, uh, from the very, right. Yeah, from the very beginning. Yeah. And, and I fought for that title because, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. when you're going through the process, you have these conversations about, well, what's the best title in terms of marketing and all of that? Uh, mm-hmm. But for me, this was the best title because the question that I asked myself was, what is a title that would convey the greatest, uh, most I think, most powerful message that Hamer wants to share with all of us? Um, and there are so many things, you know, so many directions I could have um, gone in because Hamer, and you know this, you know, she was just an amazing speaker. And she had all these, like, remarkable phrases. Um, and, you know, she would say things like, um, you know, I'm going to tell it like it is. She will say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, there are all of these iconic lines uh, from Hamer. But uh, this particular one stayed with me. Uh, this this notion that uh, whether you are white, whether you are black, you are not free until I'm free. Or, mm-hmm. or put another way, nobody's free until everybody's free. Right. I think this was a message that, that Hamer um, constantly repeated and, and wanted people to understand because it got individuals to shift their lens from just the individual to the collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite frankly, we need that message today. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the title reflected um, just the power of, of the message of, of unity, of collaboration, but more so a recognition that we are all connected, right? I mean, we may come from different backgrounds. Um, there may be differences in terms of our socioeconomic status, our race, uh, gender, sexuality, ability, like all of these things are important. But we have to live together. We have to be in this nation together. And that means that we have to come up with a way to make sure that all of us can not only exist, but thrive. And how do you do that? Um, Well, first and foremost, you have to uh, shift the perspective from I to to the collective, right? To to Mm -hmm. we, which takes us right back, right? To the notion of we the people, right? This is fundamental, to democracy, and so this is a message that I think Hamer uh, would would want all of us to be reflecting on. And hopefully, if we embrace the message, then we could, uh, I think, shift the way we we operate, where we're no longer uh, in conflict with each other, but we're listening to each other and we're trying to figure out how to make things better for other people. Uh, it, it definitely calls for us to have empathy and concern for those around us, but it, it is truly a powerful message. One of the things I'm curious about, and I'm eager to ask you as somebody who's sort of immersed herself in, in Hamer's life and work, what was different, do you think, about Fannie Lou Hamer? I mean, there were thousands of other Black sharecroppers, poor Black women, women of faith, all of these things, most of whom remain anonymous, um, a lot of times unjustly so, but you know, Hamer is, it, it, what, what strikes me is that she's representative of, mm-hmm. of so much, and yet she's also a singular figure. Mm-hmm. So in the course of learning more about her, like, what was unique about Hamer that, 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 that made her become or, or uh, uh, opened the pathway to her becoming this, you know, activist we're talking about, you know, 40, 50 years later? Well, there's so many things, um, you know, as as we've been speaking, one of the things that stood out to me um, in the process of doing the research uh, was just the way that Hamer approached life. Um, you know, I talk about in the book, the fact that Hamer did not join the movement until she was 44 years of age. Mm-hmm. 
Um, she got involved in the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. This, this, as you know, is an interracial civil rights organization and a group that was grassroots um, and it was student-led. So many of the people with whom she spoke and collaborated were much younger than her. Um, Hamer never made that a problem. You know, I, I think about how even in today's context, uh, we have all of these tensions uh, between older activists and younger activists. And this is not to suggest that there isn't collaboration, but what can easily happen is that you'll have an older activist um, might speak disparagingly, you know, about what some what, what younger activists are doing and, and suggest, well, maybe this is not the best approach and you should listen to me, you should learn from me. There's a way in which these age differences and these, you know, these generational divides can, in fact, cause deep divisions within political movements, um, as they do within families and, you know, all kinds of contexts. Uh, what's interesting about Hamer is um, she just had a sense of humility. So she walked into the space and um, she did not know a lot about what they were talking about. And so uh, she opened up herself to, to learn. Um, she listened. And once she acquired that information, then she wanted to share with other people. Um, she never took this sort of approach that, listen, you're younger than me and you can't tell me what to do. You can't speak to me. Uh, no, she allowed uh, Ella Baker to pour into her as she did Bob Moses. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, a, I think, such a powerful way to, to operate because oftentimes I think we block ourselves um, because of our inability to listen, because of our ego, right? Because um, of our belief that perhaps, you know, we have more education or we have more experience. But what, you know, what happens when we can stop and say, the person speaking to me comes from a very different background. Maybe they don't have all of the things that I have, but they have something uh, to teach me. And if I'm open, I can learn this powerful lesson. Uh, from someone um, that can speak into my life and enrich my life and, and make me more effective in my work. And I think, you know, Hamer's approach um, was, was a unique one, but I think oftentimes we miss out on the opportunity to learn because our ego gets in the way or because we, you know, we think about perhaps our education and our experience and, um, and we don't acknowledge that there's still more we can learn. And I think Hamer's approach of always being open to listen, you know, to listen to others, to learn from others, um, made a huge difference. I would also say that, that here her faith is key. Mm -hmm. I think uh, one of the things that really strike me when it comes to Hamer's approach is that in that meeting in, in August 1962, when she's listening to SNCC activists and she's According to Hamer, it's the first time that she learns that she has the constitutional right to vote as a citizen of the United States. Uh, but what's interesting is that moment represents for her both a political awakening as well as a religious awakening. Um, and what I mean by that is um, for Hamer, it's not simply that she's interested in voting rights. Uh, she's uh, interested in being part of this movement to expand Black political rights. All of that is true. But more to the point is that there's a light bulb that sort of goes off for her where she realizes this is indeed her calling. This is divinely ordained. God mm -hmm. wanted her at that meeting. She mm -hmm. had not, you know, she had not, she did not have plans to be at the meeting initially, um, questioned whether she should go. A friend encouraged her to go. 
and she took this step and she recognized divine intervention. And she believed that it was God's will for her to live out her life, shining light into a world of darkness, speaking out about, you know, speaking out against racism and white supremacy, uh, bringing truth and revelation to people. Uh, and that particular, I think, acknowledgement shaped the way she went about her activism. It meant that she didn't necessarily answer to people. She listened to people, she cared about people, loved people dearly. Uh, but even when people criticized her, even when they dismissed her, she stayed the course because she knew that she was answering to a higher power. I mean, this was not something to be taken lightly. And because she believed it was divinely ordained, she trusted that God would carry her through, that he would protect her, that he would guide her every step of the way. So that gave her this boldness. Uh, I was just talking uh, to someone who worked with Hamer uh, just this week. Um, and this is uh, Charles McLaren, you know, who was a, an activist uh, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, and he was just recalling, you know, recalling how when he took Hamer, you know, Hamer decided, you know, to run for office, uh, ran several times. But the first time he was taking her uh, to to get registered and and to begin the process of declaring, you know, that she was going to run for Congress. And he said he was so terrified for her because he had no clue what to do. Um, and and, you know, at one point he says to her, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing here. You know, he's trying to help her. And uh, and she says, well, I don't know either, but <laughs> but I'm here and I'm committed to doing this. Uh, let's take care of business and let's not worry about the rest. Um, and it was just something about this idea that a woman with a sixth grade education, with so many challenges, um, you know, who experienced uh, such hunger and poverty in her own life uh, and had so many people dismiss her and, and critique her, would stand up and say, you know what, I can run for Congress. I may not win, but there's power in trying um, and show up and do it anyways and fail and try again and try again. And I just, I, I marvel at that. And I think faith is key in understanding Hamer's passion. I think her resilience and even her humility to learn from other people, I think faith is key in all of that. One of the things that I think about is as we see throughout U.S. history and even in the present day, there are lots of different ways to be Christian. <laughs> and mm -hmm. folks who call themselves Christian didn't always end up landing where she landed in terms of views mm -hmm. on justice and, and, and race and poverty and class and all of those things. How did Famer, Hamer distinctly understand her faith in a way that led her to activism on on behalf of the oppressed, because we know there are mm -hmm. folks who are Christian nationalists. There are even other Black folks who are Christian who didn't get involved like she did, or would have disagreed with with some of her participation. So, you know, in 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 your view, how was Hamer understanding her faith in a different way than under other Christians? Even well, I think when I reflect on um, Hamer's faith and, and just the way that she lived out her faith, uh, I think immediately about liberation theology and, and, and sort of this notion that she's able to read the Bible um, and first and foremost, see herself um, in what she's reading. That, that is key, because I think oftentimes when we talk about an engagement with, with, with Christianity, and, and I would say too, I mean, this is true, um, even in my own life, um, you know, there's a process by which you have to get to a place where you recognize that, that in fact, 
you are part of the story. Um, that in fact, uh, you you are not alien to this message of liberation, but in fact that that you are also part of God's vision, right? I mean, and and that He uh, is committed to um, those who are marginalized, those who are being oppressed. Uh, one of the things that Hamer does, which I think is is so powerful, is she's constantly drawing connections to Jesus, and she, I mean, she's constantly quoting from the Book of Luke and. Um, and this this particular passage that that describes Jesus and his mission uh, to set the captives free, um, to uh, to 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 help those in need. I mean, this is what Hamer repeats in order to explain what she needs to do. Um, she sees herself uh, as following a similar path uh, for her setting the captives free is a process by which she's bringing clarity um, and revelation to people so they can see particularly what is wrong with the United States. She's pointing out the hypocrisy of the United States. She's, she's understanding that you cannot have any kind of expression of Christianity that doesn't pay attention to the here and now. And so she's resisting a lot of people who are saying, well, yes, things are difficult here and, you know, thing, things are hard, but there's a better life coming, you know, in the afterlife, you know, there's a land of uh, you know milk and honey and, and and speaking as if she has to to wait um, until the afterlife essentially to experience um, you know true liberation and, and joy and Hamer's attitude is no we have to be attentive to the problems um, facing American society now and in fact um, true Christianity um, is being deeply committed. Uh, to attending to the poor. How can you say you're a Christian and not care about those who are in need? How can you say you're a Christian um, and 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 actually hold racist views? How can you say you're a Christian? I mean, obviously we know that this is happening because we understand, you know, the larger history. Folks, you know, groups like the, the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, claim to be Christian too, right? But but Hamer, I think, is is approaching this uh, in a way that we can see the connections certainly um, to an array of individuals, in, you know, including other civil rights activists. But as as we're talking, I'm also thinking about, you know, uh, Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, and and Reverend, you know, um, Theodore Harris, um, and their work in the Poor People's Campaign, and the way that they are recognizing that part of um, living out a life um, that expresses, you know, uh, Christianity is is in fact being deeply invested uh, in in supporting and, and helping uplifting and 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 you know those who are marginalized uh, and and not simply adopting a kind of practice that 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 deepens inequality and and um, uh, and and you know that ultimately uh, creates more of a problem as opposed to a, a solution in 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 dismantling systems of oppression so so I see all of those threads when it comes to Hamer. Uh, and and quite frankly, there's really no other way to to understand Hamer's, you know, politics, uh, you know, her worldview, um, without understanding how crucial faith uh, was to all of it. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, Jamar, you know, we have been doing Pass the Mic for about seven years now. That is, I don't know how many episodes. A lot. <laughs> millions of downloads. I yes. mean, so many sessions. And we still love doing this, right? We absolutely do. I am amazed at how much energy we have. I think it gets better, like fine wine over time as yes. we do it. And that's what we tell ourselves. Yes. <laughs> Touch man, and agree. <laughs> I want us to do this for another seven years. And to do this, we are needing the audience's help. Yes. We need your help as listeners to fund this incredible work here that we're doing at Pass the Mic. And they can do that through our Patreon community. Yes. Would you consider becoming a patron of Pass the Mic for just a dollar an episode? One dollar. You can support this work. Go to patreon.com forward slash pass the mic. M-I-C. Patreon.com forward slash pass the mic and fund and fuel this work for the next seven years the next seven years the next 10 years who knows the next 50 years if the lord okay. should tarry <laughs> we are excited about gonna be holograms work. yes we will but you can fund it at patreon.com forward slash pass the mic thank you all so much for your help and support thank you I have so many questions around this topic because that's what really has drawn me personally to Hamer is the way that she understood her faith, the way that she practiced it in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, until all of us are free kind of philosophy. She's up here on my wall in the okay. middle. Um, so, uh, but to come, to come, to come back a little bit to your own story and feel free to just say next question on mm -hmm. this, but I gather from our conversations that 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 you're a person of faith, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you'd be willing to tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey and how Hamer may have affected uh, your faith or your understanding of, mm -hmm. of what it means to live out your religion. Absolutely, um, and my, I think my faith journey is a complicated one uh, because uh, initially. I, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier just this notion of, of seeing yourself uh, in, in the narrative. And that took me back to, uh, to childhood. And, you know, I, I grew up in the church. Um, I, I didn't have a choice. I had to, to go to church. Absolutely. Yeah, well, okay. yeah. So, it, <laughs> and, and it, that, that in and of itself went through a, a number of changes. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so I, at one point, yes. And then eventually um, uh, I was in a Pentecostal church. My family ended up uh, sort of shifting uh, to the Pentecostal faith, um, which was difficult for me because, um, you know, I, I would oftentimes sit there and, and listen to, um, you know, to the pastors, you know, expound the word of God uh, and, and this is not a blanket statement on, on you know, in all of expressions of Pentecostalism, but just in the places where I attended, I just left feeling judgment all the time. I left feeling um, that there was a hundred different things wrong with me, and 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 the and the God that I was that was introduced to me was just you know this God of correction and rebuke, and uh, He's always looking you know to uh, to to point out something wrong. I mean that's that was the the message that that I think came through for me, um, 
and I struggled with that. You know, I certainly uh, had no choice. I kept going. And there was a moment where I finally began to see um, that this was not the full story and that, in fact, there was another side to this. And this was uh, a vision of, of God um, as, as a loving father, a vision of God that uh, accepted me as an individual um, that, you know, created me and loved me exactly how he made me. And, uh, and I think that was empowering. Um, one of the challenges that I faced, however, was in a period of my life, which I think you certainly understand, is finding myself uh, as a Christian, you know, looking for places to, to express my faith, finding myself uh, in predominantly white churches. Yeah. And, um, and then being completely dismayed, um, having interesting experiences and encounters where I'm passed over for, for certain opportunities and, and I'm asking myself why, but I know the question why. I know, I know the answer. So I'm asking the question, but I know the answer. Um, finding myself uh, in spaces where people want my help, that you know, they don't mind relying on me you know, to, to do all kinds of things. Uh, I'm teaching, I'm leading worship, I'm doing all these things, um, but not actually even having the respect uh, to, to reach out you know, when I'm going through something or, or extend a hand of support. And so those are the moments where I started to um, say to myself, like, you know, what's, what's the point of all of this? What's, what's the point of, of being part of a community where um, I'm watching what's happening in the world. I'm watching um, and I'm feeling the pain of, of, of seeing what happens to Trayvon Martin, uh, for example, and I'm going to my pastor to talk about it. Um, and he's completely uncomfortable and yeah. he doesn't really have anything to say. He doesn't really want to talk about it because now we've shifted, you know, he can talk about faith and he can talk about, you know, how I could be a good Christian and, and my devotion and my walk, but he doesn't want to talk about racism. He doesn't want to talk yeah. about state sanctioned violence. And it becomes clear to me um, that I can't continue in these spaces. Uh, so I've, I had to remove myself. I mean, quite frankly, physically remove myself uh, from from being um, in in these physical spaces, and then having to uh, accept that being a Christian is more than just going to church every Sunday, and that being a Christian uh, is in fact a, a way of life. Uh, but to the point, it is um, similar to Hamer, uh, you know, an expression. Of, of God's love toward other people and knowing that um, you can't just be in this bubble and, and that, and that you cannot avoid uh, topics such as race and racism. I mean, there's no way to do it. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm grateful. And in fact, you know, we're talking, so I have to say I'm grateful for your work because there was a moment where I, I, um, I, I recall um, securing several copies of your book and sending it to a few folks because I wanted to make a statement, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I, I couldn't say it. So I'm like, you know, they'll read it and they'll get the message. Um, and I have to say to the credit of one of my former pastors who I really, who I was so frustrated with, uh, he, he, you know, he reached out to me over the last few months, in fact, um, and apologized and, and, mm. uh, and said how, how much he has changed in the process, how much he's learned from my own work, how much he's learned wow. from your work. I mean, so that was great. I did not expect that. Um, so, you know, to see someone who didn't want to talk about racism and didn't want to talk about state sanctioned violence, do this, you know, this complete shift and say, I get it. 
And I get that I cannot be a pastor and not care about these concerns. And, mm-hmm. and um, that's powerful. But, it, but it's a testimony too, right, uh, to how much our writing matters. Because you yeah. just don't know who will pick it up. And you don't know how it's going to change someone's life. Uh, and, and so that is really, you know, it's, it's been a journey for me. I'm still yeah. learning and growing. Um, but I'm, I'm just grateful that in, you know, in all of this, I didn't, I didn't lose my faith in the sense that I, I'm, I'm still able to live out a life where, um, where I believe firmly uh, that, you know, that, that God is in control, that he has a plan. Um, and I try to the best of my ability to, live out my days in a way um, that would please him. Um, and I believe that part of that is using my gifts and talents and, uh, and showing up, you know, even, even when I don't feel like it, but, but really showing up and doing the best that I could do because he's the one who, who gave me these abilities. So, um, so that's, that's, you know, my story, which I think yeah. absolutely connects to Hamer's in many ways. Very much so. And, uh, you know, thank you again for, for sharing that. I think that resonates with a lot of our, viewers and listeners certainly resonates with me. I mean, we had a whole campaign on our podcast called the Leave Loud campaign about these mm-hmm. stories of Black Christians in these predominantly white Christian spaces and how yeah. there was just this total, uh, I wouldn't even call it a blind spot because it was so mm-hmm. willful in, mm-hmm. in many ways. And and the kind of damage that does uh, uh, or can do to one's, one's faith, one's confidence in these spaces. So again, thank you for sharing there. Um, in talking about the book, you take an, a distinctive approach and, and you're mm-hmm. very forthright about connecting uh, Hamer's life and activism to sort of what we can learn today. And I was so I love the the connections that you made, especially in, in one particular chapter. Talk mm-hmm. to us about how Megan the Stallion connects <laughs> to Fannie Lou Hamer. <laughs> yes, yes. Um and I have to say, it's it's so interesting, the process of writing, because I, I was working on this chapter on Hamer's ideas uh, concerning um, feminist politics. And um, I, I was struggling to figure out how to best explain to a reader how we might understand Hamer as a key voice uh, and, and, and certainly, uh, as I argue, a foremother of intersectionality at the same time that she did not necessarily embrace uh, the label feminist. Uh, and, uh, and, and I remember like writing parts and pieces of that chapter and not quite knowing what would be the best like, contemporary example to send this message through, right? Of how you can just, you know, step into a particular dialogue um, and, and shift the conversation in a powerful way Without necessarily, you know, even being viewed right as as, so, as some sort of feminist icon, and and here's where Megan Thee Stallion um, shows up because, uh, you know, I think as many people know, she, uh, you know, was the victim of of a violent assault, and um, she uh, ended up writing an op-ed in the New York Times, um, not solely about her experience, and she certainly talks about her experience. But it's this op-ed of which she makes this powerful claim that we need to protect Black women. We need to care, actually, first. We need to care and protect um, Black women. And she talks about the unique challenges that Black women face in American society, uh, really drawing these connections uh, you know, to the history 
She talks about, uh, you know, societal perceptions and, and how Black women are blamed um, when they are victims of violence, uh, as she was blamed. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, pointed out, you know, her, her outfits and they made all kinds of statements as if to suggest that, uh, you know, the violence that she endured was somehow justified. And she just laid everything bare, I think. on I mean, it was so moving. Not once did she use the word feminist uh, or feminism. Um, and in fact, I don't even know if she's ever gone on record um, to call herself a feminist. Uh, but what she did in writing that op-ed, uh, which was so explosive, I mean, people just consumed it and were moved by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think once I read it, I, I thought, okay, I, exactly what she's doing here is what Hamer was doing in the 1970s, mm-hmm. right? In 1971, when she shows up at the founding meeting of the National Women's Political Caucus, uh, she stands up there and she's very clear that, you know, she's not a feminist. She's not embracing any term. Um, and she's pointing out to these women who are in the women's liberation movement. And she's pointing out to them, pay attention to the unique plight of black women. Pay attention mm. to what black women are going through. Look at the violence. Let's you know, look, look at um, how we're being treated in your households too, right? Look at uh, how all of these come together in, in terms of the systems of oppression, right? right you know, goes, goes right back to intersectionality. And I just saw the threads. Um, and and when when Megan Thee Stallion actually, in her piece, says that the way that she's conceptualized all of this is tied to a long history of Black women activists, I thought, aha, this mm. is it. Uh, and and so I was, um, it was it was surprising for me, and I think you know uh, many people said, oh, I didn't expect that. Um, but it, it it's really just you know what's so beautiful about the process of writing a book. Um, you never quite know like what will happen and, and yeah. how you can draw those connections, which is similar to the end of the book. I I was trying to write the conclusion. I was struggling with the conclusion. I wanted to to end on a somewhat high note. I mean, I you know didn't want to just end off with, with this very sad story of Hamer passing away. I mean, I had to tell mm-hmm. the story, but I wanted to give a glimmer into the, you know a, of hope and think about the future. And then I'm watching, um, you know. Uh, Kamala Harris talk and accept the um, the nomination for vice president and voila she brings up Fannie Hamer right and and then I think oh that's interesting and so I go back and listen you know over and over again to the speech and um, end up talking about it in the in the last chapter of the book Uh, so in a similar way Megan Thee Stallion's op-ed ends up showing up at a time where I was trying to best articulate how one can intervene in, in a conversation without necessarily having a label or, you know, and that's the point. Hamer did not think of herself as a feminist, um, but she ends up shaping Black feminist politics um, mm-hmm. to this very day. It's a really powerful story. It truly is. And one of the things that I appreciate about you as a historian is that you make no bones about how and why your work should impact the the present day landscape Mm -hmm. and uh some would come along and and critique that and say you know scholars should strive to be objective quote unquote so can you speak to that sort of argument and the idea of objectivity and scholarship and writing 
Um, is there mm-hmm. is there value in it, or or do we in some ways need to rethink it? Yes. Well, you know, I I believed this for a long time. Um, you know, I I took all of these classes. You know, as a grad student, and we spoke about the craft of history, and one is supposed to take a fairly neutral approach and, and not insert themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then 2015 happened, uh, which was a another transformative moment for me. And what was that? It was the uh, June of, of 2015, um, the tragic shooting uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and that was, in fact, uh, another shift in, in my entire career. Mm. Um, I was so devastated, as as many people were, by the news of how this white supremacist walks into this uh, black church, sits, listens, uh, you know, participates in this Bible study in this prayer service, and then gets up um, and just commits this heinous act, leaves nine people dead, um, and. That was bothersome enough. I mean, when I heard the news, there was I couldn't even do much that day. Mm-hmm. But what also added to my frustration was listening to the the conversations that unfolded, and I'm watching all of these, um, you know, talking heads on TV, and they're they're going on about you know this is so this is not who we are, and this is you know this doesn't happen, and I, this and in fact someone went so far to say this might be the first time that this has happened in the black church. And I'm sitting there thinking, does anyone read a history book? I'm guessing not. (laughs) And I was so frustrated. And, and then, and then was on social media and saw um, my colleague, uh, Chad Williams, who's a professor at Brandeis. He was frustrated too. He was like, I'm so tired of folks going on and on as if this is an exceptional moment. It's not, this is unfortunately part of a pattern um, in U S history. And he said, he tweeted, you know, I think folks need a Charleston syllabus. Uh, and I immediately responded. I sent him a note and said, I agree. I really do think folks need a Charleston syllabus and said, let's do it. Um, and, you know, it's one of those moments where, uh, so the two of us and Kadida Williams, um, who's another historian uh, who's at Wayne State, came together and worked on this Charleston syllabus. We put together this list, um, this public list of, of readings on, on race, on, on racial violence. Um, that would help people understand. It would help people contextualize this painful, this tragic event, uh, and realize how it how it sheds light on the deep roots of white supremacy in this nation. Uh, and so, participating in the Charleston syllabus was a moment, uh, you know, where I recognized, listen, yes, I could I could write books and articles, and I could do all these things and take this somewhat distant approach, or I could actively be involved in producing scholarship that will help clarify, that would also be of use uh, in my community. And and also I had to accept that, you know, these are life and death concerns. I, I could not just, you know, I can't talk about police violence as some abstract thing and yeah. just, you know, I have to talk about it as someone who has, who has witnessed it, as someone who knows um, the fear um, that came over me and that, that several times I, you know, I n- have never spoken about um, the moment where I, as a professor at the University of Iowa, uh, was mm. at the mall and I had just made a purchase and I realized that my, that my lecture is starting in five minutes. I had wasted too much time in the mall and I said, oh my, I need to get 
to the lecture and I begin to run uh, after paying for the product, it's in the bag, the receipt is there and I'm running to my office. And it's only by the grace of God that I live to tell the story. A police officer was running after me because I look suspicious. A black woman running out of the mall and he did not believe me when I said I was a professor. He wanted proof. I mean, we went all the way to my office. I opened the door Whoa. so he would see. Um, didn't believe it, you know, just couldn't believe it. This black woman with braids. No, no, no. And um, that was a moment, you know, and, and it's not the only time where I had those experiences. And so the point for me is that I don't have the option. Uh, you know, I just don't have the option to produce scholarship uh, that simply uh, takes this neutral approach. No, I need to be very clear where I stand. I need to be very clear about what I believe is right and what is wrong. And I need to make sure that I'm producing scholarship that will help my community, that will help black communities, um, and that will open up the eyes of those who are willing to learn uh, to be better. So I, um, and I, and I know that I'm critiqued for this. Let's be clear. I've been critiqued mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. this and I've been critiqued since 2015. In fact, people told me, some people said to me that I wouldn't get tenure because of my approach. Um, I accepted the reality that I probably wouldn't and decided that wow. that would be okay um, and just wow. kept going. Um, by the grace of God, I did get tenure. Uh, and so I just think it's important to do the work that's meaningful to you um, and to try as much as possible not to fall into the trap, you know, going with the flow uh, because, you know, Du Bois didn't go with the flow. No. Danny Lamer didn't go with the flow, right? And uh, we're able to talk about them today because they stood up. And so, you know, these are my inspirations and I absolutely want, want to make sure um, using my work uh, to the fullest. And that means um, being intentional about why I write things and why I participate in, in different initiatives. Ooh. Whoa. Huh. Listen, you are quickly becoming an inspiration for many uh, mm -hmm. today, including myself. And uh, the, the way you carry yourself, the way you stay centered, it's, it's just very... Um, like I said, inspirational. Last question. What does, you know, you, you're doing a lot of this intense work all the time and you have this mm -hmm. hectic schedule and is increasing profile, well-earned, well-deserved, a tenured professor, all of that. What does self-care and spiritual care look like for you? Well, well, first and foremost, um, it's a life of prayer. I, I just, mm -hmm. I have to every day, every day, um, I have to start there because mm -hmm. I cannot do this work um, on my own, you know, and uh, like Fannie Lou Hamer, I recognize that I do have a calling and that means just being tuned in all the time uh, to what it is God wants me to do or perhaps doesn't want me to do. And so uh, only through prayer can I figure that out. Um, you know, I, quite frankly, um, it, it is really carving out in my schedule time to rest. And that's not easy, but I have to be intentional about saying, okay, I will not do events um, on certain times of the day and certain weekends, making sure that I prioritize time with my family, making sure that I'm being active and like not just sitting around because, and it's hard, especially with the pandemic, but just, just trying to, uh, to care for myself. And the biggest lesson now that I've learned, uh, you know, it took me a while uh, is not letting yes be the default because I always, mm. you know, I spent so many years just yes, yes, yes. You know, can you do this? Yes. Can you write this? Yes. 
Um, and, and, and so now I've, I've shifted where, where no becomes a default and that forces me to pause and say, okay, if I'm going to say yes to this, why am I really saying yes? Um, and, and I think we have to, we have to take the approach because, uh, quite frankly, people are just pulling at us all day long. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the irony of being the token, right. In certain spaces, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're there, you're the one person, uh, everyone wants a piece of you. And, you know, but when you say hire more people <laughs> who look like me, no, no, no. They just want to, to keep pulling at you. So, so the best way to do that, to protect oneself and, and to care for oneself uh, is to be able to lay out, you know, your expectations, um, make sure that you tell people, this is what I will do. This is what I won't do. Um, and, and just, you know, as you said, being centered, it's not easy, but that's, you know, I, I'm also careful about who I surround myself with because mm-hmm. I've learned the hard way too, that, you know, if you're hanging around the, the folks you should not be hanging around with, you know, they, um, you know, people influence others. And, uh, yep. if you really want to do your best work, you have to surround yourself with people, um, who are equally grounded and, and who are also reminding you of what's important, um, and helping you at the moments where, you know, you are, you are feeling down or you might be um, in despair and you're struggling to, to figure out the next steps. It's good to be around people who could remind you of your calling when you, when you forget it. So um, I hope that's helpful for someone. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, I am so glad that you're making know your default and you're setting healthy boundaries, but I'm also Mm -hmm. elated that you said yes to this interview. Thank you so much (laughs) for your time. Uh, remember, check out this book, y'all until I am free. You, you will, you will be grateful that you did. And we are so glad that you joined us. Dr. Keisha Blaine, thank you so much. And hopefully this will be the first of more conversations. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.